If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 21. As we close last Shabbat, we were in the middle of the commentary on verse 9. So that's where we'll pick up today. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 9, it reads, So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Meaning when you do what God commanded with this little ritual, God will not hold the nation responsible for the innocent blood that was shed. The Bible has a lot to say about the shedding of innocent blood. And the next cross-reference we were going to look at when time ran out last week is Psalm 94. Let's go to Psalm 94. It tells us something about those who shed innocent blood. When I turn on the television and I see pastors, preachers, priests doing blessings over abortion clinics, saying they're doing God's work, it makes my heart break. Because what does the scripture say? Psalm 94. Start in verse 20. The key verse is 21. Shall the throne of iniquity. Whoops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. Psalm 94. The key verse is 21, but starting in verse 20. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Who does the they refer back to? The throne of iniquity who devise evil by law. So how does God feel about those who shed innocent blood? He does not call them righteous, does he? He certainly does not. Psalm 106. That would imply that those who make the laws to say it's okay to go ahead and shed innocent blood, they're going to be held responsible by God. What about the Catholic Church who for a thousand years put to death anyone who kept God's commandments? Yep, I don't want to be standing near one of them when they judgment day comes. Psalm 106 verse 38. Ooh. To know who we're talking about Look up at verse 28. They join themselves also to Baal of Peor. What happened at Baal of Peor? That's when Balaam brought the Moabite women and said, wouldn't you rather have these women than some dusty old desert god? And then this verse, verse 38 says, well, I guess we have to back up to 37 even. The same people with the same mindset, verse 37 says, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. You get the idea who we're talking about? Those who sacrificed their children to Moloch and the other pagan gods. 
Verse 30, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. What becomes of the land when the innocent blood is shed and no one is held accountable or responsible? It's cursed. It's cursed. It's defiled. It comes under God's judgment. Boy, good thing we don't see any God's judgment in our nation today, huh? How much more judgment from God can we take? I'm sorry, I shouldn't ask that. I, I, I wasn't meaning to. Go to Proverbs. Chapter 6. It was rhetorical. Anytime we see how much worse can things get, we find out. They can get worse. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. We'll do that whole range. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things the Lord hates. How many of you want to be on that list? No, it may be a short list, but you don't want to be on it. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. But it's not actually to him, is it? It's to his soul. A proud look. That is proud eyes. A lying tongue. What does the scripture say about all liars? They have their place in the lake of fire, huh? Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Eighteen, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. Where should we be running? Away from evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. Prominent on that list, hands that shed innocent blood. Our next reference is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. Yes, God has a lot to say about the shedding of innocent blood. Isaiah 59, verse 7. If you want to know the context, read verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your lawlessness, have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. What do we do? Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood. Verse 7, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. What does the shedding of innocent blood do? It separates you from your God. Such that although his arm is not shortened, he will not save. And though his ear is not stopped up, he will not hear the prayers. Unless it's a prayer of repentance. Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 5 to 7. 
Remember the time of Jeremiah, the southern kingdom of Judah is being taken into the Babylonian captivity. God has thrown up his hands and said, you made your bed, go lie in it. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 5. Does God ever judge without calling for repentance? Not that I can see. Verse 5, he says, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. In other words, what? What will repentance do for God's judgment? Put it off. <laughs> Put it off. It will cause it to abate, right? When we repent, God forgives. Even for the shedding of innocent blood. Jeremiah 22. So why did the southern kingdom of Judah fall? Because they refused to what? Repent. They didn't want to stop the sin. They preferred to sin, saying what? Oh, God won't judge us. We love him and he loves us. And the scripture says, there was not a man left when God's judgment was done. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then you shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Can Judah honestly say, God, how did we know you were going to judge us? God was very clear, wasn't he? And what is this? This is not the first time in Jeremiah God said, repent or else. Do you think he meant it? Absolutely. Let's look at Jeremiah 22, same chapter, verse 17. For me, just turn the page. It begins in verse 13 with a woe. Verse 17 says, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Uh, breaks your heart, doesn't it? I know it does. Jeremiah chapter 26. Again in Jeremiah, God comes back to the topic. Jeremiah is speaking directly to the people. The people want to put Jeremiah to death so he will quit prophesying and preaching repentance. Because they don't want to hear it. 
Unlike today where people in America love to hear a call to repentance, right? I wish. Jeremiah 26, 15. But know for certain that if you put me to death, me is Jeremiah, me is God's prophet. Preaching repentance, calling the people to repentance. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Hmm. Joel chapter 3. You mean God says more about the shedding of innocent blood? Oh yes he does. Where is Joel's main focus in time? The day of the Lord, isn't it? So it focuses on a time that we have not yet come to. Something we should call the future. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 begins in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time... When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. What is that battle called? Armageddon. So clearly we're talking about end times prophecy. And it says in verse 19, verse 18 says, And it shall come to pass in that day. We know what that day means. Verse 19 says, Egypt shall be a desolation and a dome, a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. Why do Egypt and Edom fall under God's harsh judgment? Because of the shedding of innocent blood of the people of Judah. We're going to find in the book of Deuteronomy, either today or next Saturday, depending upon how much I talk, that God tells the children of Israel, do not hurt Edom, for Edom is your brother. But how did Edom treat Judah? Did they reciprocate with kindness? They did not. They reciprocated with the shedding of innocent blood. So come judgment day, God will remember it. Let's look at the book of Jonah. What does Yonah in Hebrew mean? means dove. What does the word dove in Hebrew mean? means bear. Yeah, just a little trivia. Yeah, as in the things that eat you in the wilderness. Yeah. If you're ever on a trivia show, you may need to know that. But in the book of Jonah, Yonah. It's right in here somewhere. These little pages, they just stick together, don't they? Come on, come on. You're right in here. I know you are. If I don't find it quick, I'm going to have to start telling the story. So i got to find it quick. Come on, come on. Ah, come on. 
Somebody give me a page number. <laughs> I did. I found Daniel. It's two pages later. I know, but the pages, they just stick together. I couldn't get it open to it. Let me turn them one page at a time. Yeah, whether it's Christian published or Jewish published, yeah. Makes a difference. Yeah. There it is. I knew it was still in there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 14. Right before Jonah's Obadiah. Obadiah comes from two Hebrew words, servant and Lord, servant of the Lord. Obadiah is from Edom. And Obadiah was the one that had hidden so many of the prophets of the Lord from Ahab and Jezebel. And for that, God gave him the book of Obadiah, which is all about Edom's coming destruction. So he's looking back at his brother and going, you should listen to the Lord. But Jonah 1.14, Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. Even the pagans, the idol worshippers, realized that when you shed innocent blood, you anger the Lord. So what are they about to do? They're about to throw Jonah into the sea. Why? Because Jonah said, throw me in the sea. God said, mm, I got to go. Got to go fishing. <laughs> and why did God want Jonah thrown into the sea? He had a special mission for him. Had a special mission for him. He needed to learn that you must not run from God. You must be obedient. And in Matthew 27. It helps us to understand three days and three nights, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 27. Who betrayed Yeshua? Judas Iscariot. Judas finally realizes what he has done. And all that God has to say about shedding innocent blood. So let's start in verse 1, just for context. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Yeshua to put him to death. Notice, it's not the common people. It's the chief priests and elders. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he'd been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's come to the chief priests and elders who are supposed to lead people to God. And their response, what is that to us? Meaning what? They don't care. They don't care. So what? What does this tell you about the heart of the nation as reflected in its leaders? Rotten to the core. God does not judge a nation by the common people. You realize that, right? It's by the leadership. If that doesn't cause you concern, 
It should. Back to Deuteronomy. Yepper. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. Change topics. Verses 10 to 14 are all about going to battle. Verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive. So is this enemies in the land of Israel? No, this is lands outside of Israel. Because what was Israel supposed to do to the pagan idolaters within the land? Yeah, destroy them, not take them captive. So we know we're talking about external peoples. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman. And desire her and would take her for your wife. You shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn for her father and her mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. Is she allowed to continue practicing pagan idolatry? No. She has to put aside the pagan idolatry. Why would she want to marry this conqueror? She wouldn't necessarily want to. <laughs> the alternative would be death. death. So you can just see the marriage proposal. You want to marry me or die? And some of them probably said, they yeah, had rather die than marry you. But some of them said, nah, okay, I will marry you. But when she comes into Israel, she leaves the idolatry behind. Because what does the scripture say about all those who teach and spread idolatry in the land? They're to die, right? So while it doesn't come out and tell us that in these words, she must convert to the worship of the true and living God. In verse 12, why shall she shave her head and trim her nails? Does that show she can't scratch you? No, that's not it. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8. This is part of the process for the cleansing of lepers. He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water that he may be clean. So this is part of a ceremony of cleansing. It's part of the ceremony to show that she's leaving behind the pagan ways of her past. And she's starting anew. Which is why the shaving of the hair is. The hair begins to grow back. It's in the new life. It's in the new ways. It's part of a cleansing ritual. We see the same thing in the book of Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. Verse 7. Why does she put off the clothes that she wore in her foreign country in her idol worship? Again, she's putting aside her former life. Turning her back on it. What if she says, no, I'm not doing any of this? Well, then she's going to die. Numbers chapter 8, 
verse 7. We'll look at verse 6 because it tells us when it's performed. Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. It says then ceremonially, but that's in italics. You know that means it's not there in the original. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water purification on them. Let them shave all their body. And let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. Again, shaving off the hair is part of the ritual to say, I'm not, I'm not the same person anymore. I've changed. I'm leaving my old life behind. And when the Levites go through this process, they're separating themselves unto God. So it's part of a cleansing ritual. First reference was Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8. And then Numbers chapter 8, verse 7. So the next one would be something chapter 7 verse, right? I don't know. It might be. So back to Deuteronomy 21 in verse 14. We ended before with verse 13, and she shall be your wife. But then verse 14 is, and it shall be if you have no delight in her. That is, if you find out you don't want to marry her after all, then you shall set her free. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. So if you decide you don't want to marry her after all, you cannot sell her as a slave or servant to someone. You set her free. She can go back to her old country. She can stay in Israel. She can go where she wants. But she is a free person. Let's go to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 to 11. Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 to 11. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave or servant, it's the same word. It's a word to Evid. It's the same word you would use today for employees, one who works for another. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, as betrothed her to himself, that's what usually happened. A man wants to marry your daughter, but she's too young. So you sell her, quote-unquote, as a servant until she's old enough to marry. So if she does not please her master, as betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. That is, you can buy her back. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. He doesn't get to sell her as a slave. She was never meant to be a slave. She was just meant to serve and work in the household until she was old enough to marry. If he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if, she does, if he does not do these things for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. God cares for how we treat people. We're going to find out, as we keep saying Deuteronomy, God cares how we treat animals. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, we're up to verse 15. 15 to 17 are a group, so we'll read them together. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, can you give me a name? Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. Why did Jacob marry Leah if he didn't love Leah? He wanted Rachel and her father swapped wives. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was unintentional on Jacob's part. He didn't know. Shame on Jacob. But anyway, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children. So both wives have borne him children. Both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possession to his sons, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So Jacob's first son was... Reuben by Leah. Leah, not Rachel. So did Jacob make Reuben his firstborn? Did he give him the right of the firstborn? He did not. But there's the key. Let's go to Genesis 49. It wasn't that he didn't give the firstborn status to Reuben because he was born of the wrong wife. Genesis 49 explains how Reuben forfeited his Status he could have had as the firstborn with the double portion. Genesis chapter 49 is actually an end times prophecy, but it explains a lot of the reasons for the end times status. Genesis 49 verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the Acherit HaYamim. Not the last days, but the end of days. And capitalize it. As it would be in a Jewish published Bible. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might in the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it and went up to my couch. What did he do? He had sexual relations with his father's wife. What does the Bible say about that? That's a no-no, a big no-no. So while he was the firstborn, he doesn't get the blessing of the firstborn because of his sin, so it passes to Simeon. Oh, what did Simeon do? Same as Levi. So Simeon and Levi are next, and it's Gibson both because. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Cruelty there is violence. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for its fierce. And their wrath for its cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. So the firstborn status actually passes down to whom? To Judah. Why does Messiah come from Judah? Because the status came down to Judah. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? That's Messiah Yeshua. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What about a donkey and a donkey's colt? What did Messiah ride in on? A donkey, the colt of a donkey. Yes. So this prophecy could have been about Reuben. Had Reuben not sinned. Could have been about Simeon or Levi. Had they not sinned. But instead it passes down to Judah. Not because Jacob disfavored Leah, but because of the sins of the children. Does that establish a principle that we can lose blessings that might have been ours through our sin? Does sin have consequences? Sin has consequences. Go to Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. Verses 18 to 21 have never been carried out in Israel according to Sanhedrin 71a. But it says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. What happens at the, when the elders sit at the gate? They're holding court. So this is to bring the child before the court. And they shall say to the elders of this city, The son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. We're talking about a son who still lives with his father and mother. Where does he get the money and resources to be a glutton and a drunkard? He's obviously a thief. Yeah. That's what the commentaries say. This is somebody who is so degenerate that would steal from his own parents for such wanton pleasures. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones, which means they find him guilty. They pass a death sentence. And the people stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from amongst you, and all Israel shall hear in fear. Why do you suppose they say this was never done in Israel, never carried out? Because what parent wants to kill their kids? Think of the world today, how the world has changed. Why has the world changed to the point that we would dare to kill our children? Does the scripture tell us? Turn to Matthew 24. They gave their children to the idols in the, in the fire. Yeah. They, they killed their children. Yeah. But you're going to find that those are not children of the husband and wife, yeah. but children that are conceived outside of marriage. 
I thought one king is because of yeah, some son. of the kings put yeah. their sons to this. That was a married wife son. May have been a married wife son, may not have been. I know it would be hard to think of a king having sex outside of marriage, but it's happened on occasion. Yeah. But that's generally what it was. Children who were inconveniently conceived. But never mind that. That's We'll watch the videotapes when we get to heaven. But in Matthew 24, verse 12, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So when one turns away from the commandment statutes and judgments of God, the love tends to grow cold. The love toward God, yes, but not just toward God, but toward their fellow man, toward their families, toward their children. And yeah, there's always been lawlessness, so there's always been people who are cold of heart and would do such things to their children. We have a lot of parents who give their children drugs. I'm familiar with a case here in town where a son was in one of these, like the Timothy Center or whatever, for drugs, and went through their whole program. The day he was released, his mother brought drugs from Atlanta to him. And they were apprehended on their way back to Atlanta. And I could tell you a hundred stories just just as sad. It's hard to understand. Well, there are a lot of fathers that want their children to indulge in their sins. Yes, and that's we're true. See, we're, seeing, we're seeing the lawlessness that Matthew talked about um, not just open up, but it's like on fire. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always been here. I just think that today people try less to hide it than perhaps they used to. Well, when our when our leaders are actually the pattern, as you said earlier, the people say that's what no we they do that we do that. Yeah, sin becomes socially acceptable. Right. Maybe that was one reason that at the first the, the, the bad sons weren't destroyed. That would bring shame on the father and the mother. So it was more pride than love. They didn't want people to know they failed. Yeah. So there's some questions here. Does end of days begin on the seventh day? The answer is yes. That's why it shouldn't be translated um, as they tend to in the scripture, which makes it look like a long period of time. The end of days refers to the messianic kingdom. That 7,000th millennium that begins on the seventh day. Uh-oh. Somebody says I missed the current scripture, but that was a while ago. About child before the court. Aha, that helps. That is chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, verses 18 to 21. Oh, the next comment says that's okay. <laughs> I should read them all before I start answering any. Okay, we're back to Deuteronomy 21. Verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, who did they hang on a tree? Yeshua did. Messiah was hung on a tree. 
But if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put, on, he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. What do they do with Messiah's body? They took it down and got him in the grave before sundown. This is why. But you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Let's go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. You've all seen the movies. Messiah was crucified in a, on a beautifully crafted cross. The, the work of a hundred workmen for a thousand. No, he was not. What does the Bible say? John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day. What is the preparation day? That is Passover, the 14th day of the first month. What are they preparing for? The Seder, which takes place just after sundown, as it becomes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. What does that mean, a high day? was not a Saturday. That's right. It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a high Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Notice their concern is not, hey, Deuteronomy 21 says we have to get him buried by midnight. Anybody going to go, no, not midnight. Sundown. Sundown. That's not their concern. Their concern is, hey, wait a minute. We've got this high Sabbath, and if we touch a dead body after sundown, then we can't participate in the Passover. We can't show God our devotion and love. Not only that, they are not having mercy on these. They're not having any mercy on these tortured people, are they? Verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with them. Why would they do that? So they would die quicker because they can't breathe. They nail you to the crossbar and they nail your feet into the tree so that you can push up with your feet and breathe, so that the death takes much longer. Sometimes it would take three or four days for people to die. They wanted the torture to last as long as possible. So when you break the legs, they can't push up, they die quickly. Verse 33, but when they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. What did prophecy say? Not a bone shall be broken. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Doctor, what does that mean when the blood has separated into the platelets and the water? The heart's ruptured and he's dead. And they're really dead. There's all these people that say, oh, he didn't die. He, he revived when he went to the cool of the cave. No. When he came out blood and water, that means he is dead. And he was seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled quote not one of his bones shall be broken where's that quoted from Exodus 12 
verse 46, which is about the Passover lamb, that the bone of the lamb must not be broken. Are they saying that was a prophecy of Messiah's death? Yes, they are. <laughs> he was the Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Verse 37, again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. What scripture is that? Zechariah 12.10. Daniel, what comes in the middle of that sentence that is not translated to English? And where is that Aleph Tav located? Right after the word? Him. They shall look upon me, Aleph Tav, whom they pierced. At, yes, ma'am? Right, it's, okay, it's the 12 tribes. Okay. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Verse 3, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Did the Sanhedrin vote unanimously to put Messiah to death? The answer is no. You wish they did. Why? Because if the vote's unanimous for death, the man is set free. Because even that long ago, they realized that 71 people are not going to agree on a fact if it's a true fact. So after this, Joseph of the Arimathea being a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly. Why secretly? He was afraid of the rest of the Sanhedrin. For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Yeshua. And Nicodemus, who first came to Yeshua by night, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, if you remember. Also came, bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. <coughs> then they took the body of Yeshua, God bless you, and bound it in a full sheet of linen with the head fully intact. No, in strips of linen. In a strap from Turin. In strips of linen. Yeah, that they got from Turin, obviously. <laughs> With the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. What's a garden in biblical terms? An olive grove, yeah. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Yeshua because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So was Messiah buried before sundown? The answer is yes. That's what verse 42 means. Because of the preparation day. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13. What did Deuteronomy say about a man who was nailed to a tree? Cursed. Galatians 3.13 says, Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So why was it important that Messiah not be stoned, but that he be crucified? He had to die upon a tree. If the Jews, the Sanhedrin, had been meeting in the chamber of hewn stone on the Temple Mount, Messiah would have been stoned to death. 
But for some unexplainable reason, for a very short gap of time, they were mad at Rome and refused to meet in the chamber of hewn stone. Therefore, by their own law, they could not give a death sentence. That's why they sent him to Rome, who kills by crucifixion. How could God know that for this little bitty bit of time, they would be refusing to meet in the chamber of hewn stone? Because not long after, when they condemn Stephen, they're sitting again in the chamber of hewn stone, and Stephen is put to death by stoning. And who is the Sanhedrin's witness? Paul. They were actually reconciled to Rome because Rome put Messiah to death. Yep. True enough. Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I guess one thing that struck me long ago is that's an odd thing to say in the book of Deuteronomy 21 about a man being put to death on a tree being cursed. And then you realize that was all about Messiah. Even though Messiah wouldn't come for 1,500 years almost later. Acts chapter 5 verse 30. This is not a mistranslation. This is accurate. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. I know you've seen the movies with that beautifully sculpted cross that Messiah is trying to carry through the streets and he falls down. They have to get somebody else to carry it. What they carried was the crossbar that the hands at the wrist get nailed into and they go out to any tree stump and they drop that crossbar on the tree stump and then nail the prisoner's feet into the tree. In Israel they have found nails from crucifixion with the portions of the tree that came out with the nail. So we know exactly how it was done. But Acts chapter 5 verse 30 says he was murdered by hanging on a tree. What does it mean to be hung? To be impaled. How is he impaled? Through the nails. Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 10. Verse 39. Acts chapter 10 verse 39. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Verse 39, they killed by hanging on a tree. Acts chapter 13. Verse 29. Acts chapter 13, verse 29. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, him being Messiah Yeshua, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 
1 Peter chapter 2. So why all these images of this beautifully crafted cross? Because it comes from the Egyptian Ankh, which is part of pagan religion. That's where the cross that we see that represents Christianity of today comes from, is the Egyptian Ankh. If you ever see it, it's a cross with a little loop at the top to go in the chain. That's what the Ankh was. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. We'll start in 21 for context so that we know whom it's talking about. Not that we wouldn't know anyway. But verse 21 says, For to this you were called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, no is deceit found in his mouth. What does this say that we should be? Like that, to commit no sin and have no deceit in our mouth. Verse 23 says, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Where's that quoted from? Isaiah 53, uh -huh, verse 5. But you who are like sheep going astray, another reference to Isaiah 53, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That shepherd, John chapter 10 says, how many shepherds? One shepherd. How many flock? One. How many ways? One. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 22. Verse 1. New topic. Why is Moses throwing the kitchen sink into one book that's given in just a couple of days? Has to be read every seven years and he's about to die. So he doesn't have three years to tell him these things, right? So in the next couple chapters, he's going to change topic quickly. Verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Have you ever heard the expression... Finders, keeper, losers, weeper. That's not a biblical concept. So if you see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray, can you go, well, not my problem, and just drive on? Yeah, the scripture says, no, if you see it going astray, you cannot just close your eyes and say, I'm in a hurry, I've got things to do, I don't want to be... Concerned with this now, you take the animal back to your brother. So this is the answer to the question asked in Genesis 4. Am I my brother's keeper? That's exactly right. Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you love your neighbor as yourself, if you saw your ox or sheep going astray where it's going to get lost or destroyed, would you do something about it? 
If you would do it for you, you have an obligation to do it for your brother. Now we have a question. Yeah, but yeah, but what if he's not near me? So verse 2, and if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, so it's not talking about your just physical brother, then you shall bring it to your own house. Oh, then it's mine. No. And it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. What if no one ever comes looking for it? Then it does become yours. And that is essentially the same thing we have in American jurisprudence. If I'm walking along the side of the street and I see a bag full with cash, full of cash, what does the law require me to do? Do you know? Turn it into the law. Who will advertise for a set period of time and if no one claims it, then it becomes mine. Because I've done all that I can do to determine who owned it. Now, if you're walking through the Walmart parking lot and you see a penny, what happens if you take that into the local police station and say, I found this penny? <laughs> They're going to say, put it in your pocket and get out of here. Because no one's going to be looking for the penny. But that's not God's point here. His point here is, you have an obligation to protect your neighbor just as you would want your neighbor to protect your goods and assets. Yes? Was there a certain way that the animals were identifiable? Like, hey, this belongs to this guy. Were they, like, branded? Or Was there a certain way they were identifiable? The answer to that is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, there were certain times that you would mark your animals, like when they were passing under the rod for the tithe, so you would know. But more likely than not, you're not going to be able to tell whose it is. If you just see a sheep wandering, there's not a brand like a horse or a cattle in the American West, or a tag in the ear. No, they didn't have anything like that. So that's why it says you may not know whose it is. It's not that you don't know who your neighbors are, but you don't know who owns the sheep. But if you put it in your pen, when? chances are your neighbor's going to come looking for it. Yes, sir. Um, this this particular one fits in with something. I did a, a thing this week where I was talking about loving your neighbor. And it is so common to hear people say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm -hmm. so you love doesn't appear anywhere in the scripture. And... Uh, I argued that, um, you know, the preacher so often says, of course, you've got to love yourself first, which shifts the emphasis to you rather than to the neighbor. And uh, I argued that it actually means as if he were yourself. And I quoted various scriptures, but this one would fit into that as well. Absolutely would. And the word love, remember, in biblical terms is not the emotional attachment. It's how you treat people, how you want to be treated. It's another way of putting the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I drew exactly that parallel. I said it's the same thing as the golden rule. I would agree with you 100%. 
So in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 22, when you bring it back to your house, you are keeping it as a trustee for your brother. That is, you have an obligation to feed it, to water it, to protect it, to protect it as best as you can, as you would one of your own sheep, such that if they come to reclaim it, they reclaim it in as good a condition as when it was lost. So like a trustee. No finders, keepers, losers, sweepers, sorry. You could get quite a collection of dogs and cats around here. People leave out their dogs and cats because they don't want them. Unfortunately, I have a porch kitty just like that. I don't own a cat, but I've had a cat for probably five or six years now. Still waiting for the owner to show up. The cat that adopted me, yeah. When a cat first came around, we put up ads and we put up posters and nobody claimed it. So he fed it for a while and nobody claimed it. We took it to the pound, a non-kill shelter, and they found it has a chip and they contacted its owners and delivered it to the owner. And three days later, it was back on our porch and it's been there ever since. So we just put out food. If the neighbor ever comes to claim it, he can have his cat. But so far, it hasn't happened. So does this only apply to oxen sheep? No, it applies to cats. It applies to cats too. <laughs> Verse 3 says, You shall do the same with his donkey, so you shall do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's. So God's anticipating, if I just say the ox or the sheep, they're going to say, well, that's a goat. That's mine. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. So God actually says, with any lost thing of your brothers, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You can't take the sheep and hide it away so they can't find it to say, hey, that's my sheep. So if anybody ever comes knocking on the door and says, did you find a penny in the Walmart parking lot? You say, sure, here it is. But I'm pretty sure you don't have to lose sleep at night worrying about that. Actually, this principle is among a group of principles throughout Torah that encourages loving your brother, encourages community. Encourages culture, community. I like that. Yeah, responsibility. Um, and if you look at the history of Jewish people, there's an awful lot of examples where you've got a poor person who's Jewish. They take him into the community. They help him set up his own little shop if he has a talent. And they help him to prosper, which helps the community, which helps. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's just really a godly cycle. Yeah. You see so much godliness in people that do those things. And then you'll find another community where here's one of their relatives that's forward in need and they just shut their doors and don't worry about it. But your Jewish communities traditionally uh, show the heart of this matter. Yep. True religion as is taught in the scripture is a community religion. Worshipping together, sharing together. Okay. Verse 4. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. 
just reinforcing the fact that we need to treat our neighbors as we would want them to treat us. Verse 5 changes topic completely. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. When I hit that verse, the first thing I did for some reason was to go look at commentaries to see how churches today are teaching this verse. And the first one I came across said, this is not a prohibition against cross-dressing. This clearly refers to some pagan custom that we've never heard of. <laughs> it's exactly about cross-dressing. That's exactly what it is. I've heard a preacher 20 years ago preach say that it was due to men putting on women's clothes so they could escape during a war or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that would be... That's not forbidden. Yeah. So this is a prohibition against cross-dressing. Why is it not popular today? Because we have so many cross-dressers and other such sexual perversions. The next commentary said, yeah, this is about cross-dressing, but doesn't appear, doesn't apply anymore. Doesn't apply anymore. Have you not read Acts chapter 15? There's only four things that Christians are prohibited from doing. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's all about why, yeah. Because it was being done for sexually immoral purposes, yep. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 and see. It's more than just clothing. When it says anything that pertains to a man, it's not just talking about clothes. It is talking about clothes, but for more than that. 1 Corinthians 11.3 is about hair. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to know that the head of every man is Messiah, the head of woman is man, and the head of Messiah is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. How many texts and emails have I gotten about, oh that's talking about the keeper. you can't wear a keeper. That's not talking about kippa. The Greek words mean which flows down the side of the face. It's talking about the long hair. How do we know? Jump down to verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Yeah. So really, to me, it's about order. It's about God's it is. It's exactly about order. And in Genesis 3, God established an order. So why do people, a man, why does he want to dress, put on makeup, etc., and present himself as a woman? Is it to preach the gospel to people? No, that's not why they're doing it. By the same token, yeah, it goes the other way too. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Does this mean we shouldn't have the 
cross-dressing queens doing the story hours in elementary schools? First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. In other words, don't look like the prostitutes. Because that is trying to emulate the world. Also gain attention for yourself. And to gain attention for yourself. Where should our attention be? Messiah. On Messiah. First Peter chapter 3. Verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting up fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. In other words, what's most important is not the outward appearance, but how is the heart? If you've got a beautiful heart, that should be sufficient. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. Don't some churches take it to the extreme and say that only women can wear uh, dresses and skirts and can't wear pants? Yipper. And is that what this verse is trying to tell us? No. Yeah, so let's go back to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. It only comes down to this. Men should look like men and women should look like women. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 6 to 7. New topic. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young one or on the eggs, is it okay to eat birds, most birds? Yeah. Yes. Most eggs of birds? Yeah. Yes. You shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. We think of birds as being little, almost insignificant things, but in God's eyes, they are his living creatures. And God cares even how we treat the birds. And to take the mother with the young is to be cruel to the mother, because... Mothers, by and large, care about their children, their offspring, even the birds do. So God says, take the children, take the eggs, but leave the mother, let her go free. Now we change topic again. But it's still on the topic of compassion. God has shown us in this chapter compassion toward people and compassion toward animals. Now we're back to compassion toward people. When you build a new house, 
You shall make a parapet for your roof. What's a parapet? It's a railing, a border. In those days, the roofs were flat. And how hot can it get in Israel in the summertime? Real hot. So people would go up on their roofs to escape the heat that would build up in the houses. And sometimes they would sleep on the roof. They would eat on the roof. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter's praying on the roof. Have you ever seen anybody walk around and pray while they pray? Or while they're singing on the southern steps of the Temple Mount and walk off the edge? It's a horrible thing. Horrible thing. Yeah, it happened on one of my tours. Somebody was looking up, singing and praying to the Lord and walked off the edge. But God says when you build a house, they've got flat roofs. People can be walking on, they can be singing, they can be praying. Put a parapet around so they don't fall off. That's what it is here. So verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed in your household if anyone falls from it. So they might fall from it if there's a parapet, you're not guilty. Well, if they fall from it and it's a parapet, then it might not have been an accident. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. To apply that to today, you don't have a flat roof, so no. nobody's going to walk on it. But if you did, you would still be required to put a fence around it. Um, what does American code require? When we put that deck on the front of our house, we were required to put a fence around it. Even though the deck's only, what, three feet tall? The code still requires that rail to make sure nobody just accidentally falls off. It's like having a rail on stairs, too. It's a rail on stairs is required by law because? Because of safety. For safety. And, that, and around your swimming pool. And around your swimming pool, yeah. yeah. Things like that. It's just protection from accidental Yeah, it doesn't protect you from people doing stupid things, but it protects you from accidental things. I mean, like these kids in the Florida in the College Break climbing out to see if they could go from fifth story to fourth story on the outside? Yeah, stupid things like that. One of the saddest cases I had to work on is an attorney was in Okinawa. A young lady who was totally inebriated put together a kite out of bed sheets and tubifores and ran off the edge of a dormitory's third floor to see if she could make it fly in the hurricane. It didn't fly. No. There should have been a parapet around the roof, but there wasn't. Okay. Oh, I gotta quit telling stories. Things are being recorded. Let's see. Did I name the cat? Yes, of course. Sue's right. His name is Porch Kitty. Porch Kitty. Yeah. At first, I called it not my cat, but I I couldn't keep that up. Nobody, and then you can say, Nobody is bothering me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Back to Deuteronomy 22. I kind of remember recording these things. Verse 9 changes topic again. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. 
This says specifically, can't mix seeds in the vineyard. But in the earlier teaching in Leviticus 19, it's broader. So if you plant half-runner beans with your corn, that would actually violate that. But it makes a lot of sense today to us to do that. I don't know that that would violate it. It's if you're planting two kinds of beans or two kinds of corn. Oh, so it's the same. So that when they come up with hybrids. The same, yeah. Yeah, it's a prohibition against hybrids. Against the same family. Yeah. Is that a double meaning that you referred to with regards to, I mean, because what I thought of was if we sow, you know, the good seed from the word or we get into other stuff that is not of the word. That would be a sowed, a deeper meaning. Yeah. Because Messiah talks about the good seed being the gospel, the bad seed being the false doctrines. Don't mix them together. But in Leviticus 19, 19, says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed. Nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. We're going to come back to that mixed garment of linen and wool again. God brings that up a couple times. So uh, a mule is prohibited? Yeah, mules shouldn't be. Zonkeys, zebra, and donkey. <laughs> yeah, zebra's a horse designed by committee. You know that. Okay. <laughs> what happens if you take wool and linen and weave them together into a fabric? They tear, but more than that, they secrete a chemical that burns the skin. Really? Yeah, it's dangerous. What if you, or, or not for real, what if you uh, had like a cotton undershirt? Did you hear the word cotton at all? It says wool and but linen. Linen comes from cotton. No, no linen, linen comes from flax, flax not from okay. cotton. All right, well, so, all right, so. Cotton's okay. <laughs> If you have a wool shirt on, well, I'm just saying There's no way you're going to take that where it's going to cause a problem. You don't want yeah. linen. It's a garment where they are, they're weaved together. Right. Where they're weaved together. And it has a deeper spiritual meaning, like Miradell was asking about the mixed seeds. Right. The wool represents what? What God's created. Right. And the flax, what you've created, what you've grown. So mixing the things of God with your own works. Just like Cain and Abel with the lamb for the offering versus the vegetables for an offering. So there's deeper meanings to a lot of these things. She's getting the spirit. The Lord's saying. Yes, I'm... Uh, I wanted to ask what about the military uniforms that are mixture of polyester and wool. Polyester is not linen. No. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going. Yeah. Verse 10. Here's one that'll knock your socks off. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. 
Today we use tractors usually, but what's the problem with plowing with an ox and a donkey? The ox, they're, they're not equal in strength and in power. The ox is going to hurt the donkey. They don't pull the same way. Yeah. They don't work together. Unequally yoked. That's exactly right. They are unequally yoked. Yep. Verse 11. I told you we'd come back to this again. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. Notice there's no such as. It is specifically a garment woven out of wool and linen together. God says don't do it. We know chemically it's harmful and dangerous to the skin. But God said don't do it. He doesn't explain it either. He doesn't say this is why to make sure you agree. He just says don't do it. I am the Lord. Because I said so. Yeah. We just know from experience that if you don't do this you can get a nasty reaction from it. Yep. And poly means many, and it's not breathable like a natural, like you know, cotton or linen or whatever wool. And so, and so, that probably is has not been a good thing for us the last forty years or so to be wearing all the polyester blends. Mm -hmm. But not everything that's not good for us is a sin. But it still may not be good for us. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't mean a sin, but just that, you know. Yeah, just that it's not God, good. Yeah, yeah. But it is cheap. <laughs> Cheaper than wool. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 12 is an entirely different topic again. It concerns the tzitzit that goes at the corner of our tallits. Verse 12, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. Go back to Numbers 15. Verses 37 and 38. And you're going to notice a difference. What's that reference again? Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 38. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. When you read commentaries on it, they say you put tassels on a four-cornered garment. You look here and go, I don't see anything about four corners. Where does it say four corners? The answer is in Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verse 12. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. That's how we know it goes on a four-cornered garment. Why they choose another word, who knows? It just, when you look at it, it just says twisted thread. Yeah. It's just another way to describe the tassels. Is there a reason the blue thread was omitted? 
It doesn't say anything about the colors in Deuteronomy. It's because you, you read the two together. He's just reminding them of things. There should be nothing in Deuteronomy that hasn't been commanded before. He's just condensing it down together. Alrighty, next topic. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her. This is PG-13 from here on. So children, cover your ears. Ladies, if you're easily offended, cover your ears. Let's all just cover our ears. Okay. If any man takes a wife, goes in or detests her, means finds out that she is not the virgin that she claimed to be when he paid the bride price and negotiated the bridal contract called the ketubah and charges her with shameful conduct, that is, with committing adultery during the period of their betrothal, and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. Oh, I have to talk about this. On the wedding night, when the virgin has sexual intercourse for the first time, there is blood that is shed, and she gives the sheet to her parents to hold as the proof that she was, in fact, a virgin. That's what they're talking about here in verse 15, the evidence of the young woman's virginity. They bring out the sheet and say, here's the sheet, here's the evidence, here's the proof, he's lying. Verse 16, and the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave, this, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of this city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. Traditionally, that means 39 stripes with the whip. And they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman. Remember, the father of the young woman paid a dowry. And here's a refund of at least a part of the dowry. Because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. So she can do nothing in the future that will allow the man to divorce her. Why she wants to stay with him, that's a topic for another day. But however. But if the thing is true. and evidence, Yes. <laughs> What, what were those verses, chapter and verses? We're in Deuteronomy chapter 22, starting in verse 13. Okay, thank you. Yep. Right now in verse 20 of what if it is true? But if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman... Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house 
and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house, so they shall put away the evil from among you. This is more important than you might think, because it plays into the events of the birth of Messiah. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph and Mary are betrothed, she is a virgin. Verse 18. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... That is, between the betrothal period and the wedding itself, there's at least a year, not more than two, to build the bridal chamber. You know that. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. When she's found to be pregnant, what does this tell her husband? That she's not a virgin, right? Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, to make her a public example would be to come to the elders at the gate and say, I was betrothed to a virgin and clearly she has committed adultery and she is no longer a virgin and should be put to death. He doesn't want to do that. So he says, was minded to put her away secretly. That is, he's going to give her a bill of divorce and let her go home and not tell anybody, not besmirch her name, not bring her to the judges, just simply to let her go. But while he thought about these things, meaning while he's contemplating what he should do, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Meaning what? She is still a virgin. She has not committed adultery. She has not broken her betrothal vows. And she will bring forth his son. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, meaning Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Yeshua. So Joseph had every right to bring her to the judges and have her put to death. He said, that's not the right thing. I'll just put her away quietly, just send her away, no reason to embarrass anybody or besmirch anybody. And the Lord says, don't you do it. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Ah, we changed topics again. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, what do you call this? Adultery. Then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Now go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. 
verses 1 to 11. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. The seventh day just ended. It ends with verse 1. But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. Why does he go to the Mount of Olives? That's where the daughter cities are. Yeah, to sleep there, because that's where the two daughter cities are, Bethany and Bethphage. He He doesn't like staying in Jerusalem. Now, verse 2, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. What's the first thing you notice? Where is the man? If they were interested in justice and fulfilling the law, the Torah of God, the man would be there too. So this is your first clue. They have no interest in God's commandments. It's simply to trap Messiah. Verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman is caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This is what they consider to be a juridical question. You know what that is, right? A question where the answer condemns you, whichever answer you give. What's the classical example? I put you on the stand in court and say, have you stopped beating your wife? And you have to keep your answer to yes or no. If you say yes, that means you're admitting you used to beat your wife. And if you say no, it means you still are beating your wife. You should say yes and no. Yeah. But sometimes they will first say to the judge, now instruct the witness, they can only answer this question yes or no. And if they answer with anything else, find them in contempt and jail them. They're trying to put you in a box. And that's what they're trying to do Messiah, is put in a box. What if he says, stoner? They'll say, you have no compassion. And if they say, let her go, they'll say, oh, you're breaking the law. So they think that either answer will condemn him. So they say, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. You guys know. What's he writing? Their names names from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. What's it say? Keep a finger here. We all know. Except for people on the internet listening going, I don't know. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What did he just say the day before? He's the fountain of living waters. So verse 7, And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He returned their juridical question with a juridical question. Exactly. He returns their juridical question with a juridical question of his own. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Yeshua was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. Now he speaks to the woman. Just a second. 
When Yeshua had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So she said, No one, Lord. And Yeshua said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, which means repent. Yes, Edmund. The um, writing in the dust, Jeremiah 17 says, the names of, of those that are written, in, it's talking about uh, bad judges and what have you. So they would have known what right, the names will be written in the, in the dust. Um, it's in Jeremiah 17. Right, mm -hmm. Jeremiah 17, 13. So that's why they depart from the oldest to the youngest. The oldest, the most learned and experienced, make the connection first and go, wait a minute, he just told us yesterday, he's the fountain of living waters, let's get out of here. You're absolutely right, Edmund. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 22. Verse 23, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, not my favorite topics, but however. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, that's important. She's betrothed to a husband. If she's betrothed to a husband, that's the first stage of marriage. The bride price has been paid. The ketubah has been signed. The wine has been partaken of. And he's gone back to build the bridal chamber. The only way to break the betrothal is with a get, which is a bill of divorce. They're married, but no cohabitation, no hanky-panky. So if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, what do we call this? Rape. You shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and shall stone them to death with stones. That seems unfair unless you read on. Young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, meaning not rape. All she had to do was cry out. The cities are not like Atlanta in those days. The cities are small. And if she cries out, the neighbors hear and they can deliver her. So why did she not cry out? Because it's a consensual thing. She is committing adultery. What did we just read about the woman who's committing adultery? That she dies. Okay. So the young one, because she did not cry out in the city. If you go to trial today for rape, what's the first thing the prosecutor has to establish? That it was not consensual. And the first thing they're going to ask the young lady is, did you say no? Did you cry out? Did you this, that, and the other? That's why. It's just the, the old biblical standard being brought forward into American jurisprudence. And the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, she's just betrothed, but she is still a wife. So you shall put away the evil from amongst you. Now verse 25 is... But if a woman finds a betrothed young woman, again, a betrothed young woman in the countryside, the rules are different if she's not betrothed to another. So she's betrothed. She's in the countryside. We know about the countryside. There may not be anybody around. So screaming and yelling may bring no help. It says, and a man forces her. Now we're talking about real rape. And lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die. Because what could she do? She did anything and everything she could do. So she's not responsible. He is. 
Verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. That is, she did not have the ability to prevent it. Verse 27, for he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. Now verse 28, she's a virgin, but she is not betrothed, which means she's eligible for any young man's hand in marriage. Verse 28, if a young man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, which implies what? She's a willing participant. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver. Pay him the bride price. You just got yourself a bride. And she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. So the verses before this, the young woman is betrothed. Here, she's eligible for marriage. And he found himself a bride. But God says, now marry her, pay the bride price, and you're stuck with her all her days. What's that? Shotgun marriage. Yeah, shotgun marriage. You know there's a biblical underpinning for most of these things. Yes, some. Was there a provision for those women in those situations where here now they're forced to marry a man who probably is going to harbor resentment and hatred toward that woman and to protect her from abuse? In other words, was she able to leave him? No, women couldn't divorce their husbands. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty tough. But remember, we all have to stand before a judge one day. Who knows it all? Nah. We'll just go on. <laughs> Verse 30 actually goes with the next chapter. Starting in verse 30 and going through chapter 25, verse 8. Is a, I'm sorry? I'm sorry. I was, where does it go? To verse 8 of, verse, of chapter 23. Thank you. Yeah, from 2230 to 23, verse 8, are all about forbidden marriages. Forbidden marriages. So verse 30 says, A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. Can anybody tell me where we violate that one in the scriptures? Reuben, yeah. And what did he lose? His status as firstborn. He could have been the father of the kings of Israel and of the Messiah, and he lost all that. In the New Testament, we turn up to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. One of David's sons did the same thing. The death penalty not apply in that case. It should have. But remember, for the death penalty, somebody has to take the man to court, present evidence, and find him guilty. And David was unwilling to see his son put to death, even for an offense where he should have been. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. 
It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So this is a man in the church claiming to be a believer, accepted by the rest of the congregation as a believer, and Paul says, are you out of your minds? Somebody who is doing this is not saved. And what does he say? He says, get them out of the congregation. Verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Yeshua. And of course, we learn in 2 Corinthians, they excluded him from the congregation. He understood the seriousness of his sin and repented, and then he was restored to the congregation. But Paul sets up the principle here is if somebody is claiming to be a believer and is part of the congregation and they're committing such sexual immorality, get them out. Unfortunately, today, the modern church interprets this as what? Ordain them and put them in the pulpit, right? But that's not what God said to do. God said to get them out. Okay, so back to Deuteronomy. Let's look at the other forbidden marriages and why they're forbidden. What's that? Time. Oh, time's out. I'm sorry. We will have to pick up with chapter 23, verse 1, next week.